Acts chapter 2 this evening, looking at just a couple of verses in our continued study on the death of death and the death of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter, of course, is speaking in what is commonly known as his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask again that you would graciously provide us a measure of your Holy Spirit to open your word to our understanding. For we know that even as regenerate, we are still dull of mind and sense, still see in a mirror dimly, and we are still prone to error and misunderstanding of your word. And so we know, Father, that it is your Spirit that gives light, And it is the unfolding of the Word that sheds light upon the Word. And so we ask that your Spirit, indwelling us, would unfold your Word to us this evening and open our minds and the eyes of our spirit to see what you have written and to understand more regarding that death in which death died, the death of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In any branch of study, including biblical hermeneutics, it's important to ask questions. We ask questions of our teachers. We ask questions of the text. But it is important to ask the right questions. And there are a number of obstacles that are in the way of us asking the right questions. One obstacle is when we don't have enough knowledge to formulate the right questions. I find this to be the case with my chemistry students. At least for the first few months of the year, they don't know enough even to ask good questions. Sometimes in our Thursday night class, when we're talking about something somewhat difficult, somewhat esoteric, uh, there's perhaps not enough understanding of the concept to even ask the right questions. So a lack of knowledge, a foundation of understanding keeps us from asking the right questions of the text of the Bible. And I think we've all experienced that the more we study, the more questions we have to ask. But hopefully, if we study correctly, our questions are intelligent and they are the correct ones. Another obstacle to asking the right questions is when we come to the text with predetermined answers. And we would be naive to think that we don't have a bias. Even those who are new to the faith come from a particular cultural background, particular uh, presuppositions and ideas regarding the world and life and right and wrong. And these predetermined mindsets affect the questions we ask. And we tend to ask the text leading questions looking for the answers that we are seeking 
rather than the answers that the Holy Spirit seeks to give. A third obstacle to asking the right questions is that we, when we come to a topic loaded down with peripheral issues, minor issues or uh, auxiliary issues, rather than the heart of the matter. Now, we've been asking the question over the past few weeks, for whom did Christ die? And that is a point of serious contention within evangelical Christianity. It is the most serious disagreement between Calvinists and Arminians. And if you meet a four-point Calvinist, someone who professes to be a four-point Calvinist, I will pretty much guarantee you that fifth point that he will not accept is that of limited atonement. The Reformed answer to the question, for whom did Christ die? Well, this question is certainly subject to all of the obstacles I have just mentioned. For example, it is actually a deeply theological question. It's not milk. It is meat. And it does require, I believe, an understanding of the full counsel of Scripture before one can take it up and ask the right questions and even ask the question, for whom did Christ die? It is also a question that is certainly subject to preconceived ideas about the nature of God. We're told that God is love. In the Arminian evangelistic verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And so this preconceived idea regarding God's love for all men impacts the questions that we ask when we study to understand for whom Christ died. There are also peripheral issues. Unsaved loved ones. Evangelistic programs, missions programs, things that we want. We want our children saved. We want this program to be successful. We want this missionary to be able to plant a church in this godless region of the world. It's what we want. But what we want is not the heart of the matter. And so when we come to this issue in particular, with such peripheral issues, important as they may be, we're not likely to ask the right questions of the Scriptures. I mentioned earlier the Arminian Gospel verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. Now there is in modern Christianity an underlying error in the concept of the Godhead. Now, we get it right in that we profess that all three persons of the Godhead are equally God, that God is but one God who exists eternally in three persons. We can, we can say all of that, but we don't really understand the relationship and the interaction between God the Father and God the Son as it concerns the salvation of sinners. And there is still this residual idea of God the Father as a wrathful Old Testament God, a God of law, a God of wrath and judgment, a God ready to throw down bolts of thunder and lightning to destroy the ungodly. 
We have this image of Jesus the Son coming before the Father, and, and, and I don't mean in any way to be blasphemous or, or sacrilegious in this portrayal because I certainly don't agree with it, but it's as if Jesus comes to the Father and says, Father, let me, let me go to them. Let me see what I can do. And people who even name the name of Christ see themselves as still sinners under the wrath of God, but Jesus is standing in the way and deflecting that wrath of God by His love. And we have this really bad image that the whole plan of redemption was, was somehow the, the idea of the Son. And yet that verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And we understand from Scripture that Jesus came to do the will of the one who sent him. In fact, his most common reference to his father in the Gospels is the one who sent me. And so I think it's important for us to maybe step back in our question, for whom did Christ die? And this is something that John Owen does in his treatise, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Taking a necessary step back and recognizing a more fundamental truth that undergirds the death of Christ, and that is it was the Father who sent the Son. And the Son who came to do not His will, but the will of the Father. Now we look at this verse that I read from Acts chapter 2, and we see remarkably the the balance of human responsibility and divine sovereignty when Peter says, This man, Jesus the Nazarene, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, leads us to a question, not just for whom did Christ die, but rather, what did God intend in sending His Son? Stepping back from the question of the, the ones for whom Christ died, we go back and ask, even in the deep counsels of the Godhead, for what purpose did the Father send the Son? Clearly, He sent Him to die. That's eminently clear in verse 23. I really don't know how the Arminian gets around this verse, there is the responsibility of the Jews who nailed Jesus to a cross. There's the responsibility of the Romans whose cross he was nailed to. And yet it was all according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so why did God the Father send the Son? What did he intend in the death of his Son? But that actually leads to another question, one which I'm sad to even have to ask. But throughout the history of the church, this has been a necessary question, and even more so today than in the past. And that is, does God always accomplish His will? You see, before we ask the question, 
what was God's intent in sending Jesus to die on the cross? What was his purpose in the death of Jesus? We need to find out, well, does God always get what he wants? And remarkably, there are many who would answer that, no. The open theist teaches that God does not know the future and merely responds to the future as best he can as that future is unfolded. But even the Arminian, though he might not agree explicitly that God does not get always what he wants, nonetheless, he establishes a power greater than the will of God, and that is the will of man, who can resist the Spirit. By the way, if you ever meet a third, uh, a three-point Calvinist, it's the irresistible grace that falls by the wayside next. Because man in his sin can resist the Spirit fully and finally thwarting what God desires. And that's how they say it. God wants to save everybody. He desires to save everybody. But he cannot unless they believe. What does Scripture say? We believe that the Bible is the self-disclosure of God. It is the revelation of His nature to His creation, particularly to man. And we read in such passages as Isaiah 46, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 concurs with the Lord's words in Isaiah, where in verse 11 Paul writes, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Well, those are just two of many verses. Verses that teach us in Scripture of God's absolute sovereignty. Verses that teach us that He is the one who creates light and darkness. That He creates vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. But that certainly teaches us that he acts according to his will and accomplishes the entirety of that will. That's an important discovery. Because if we introduce contingency into our concept of God, folks, there's nothing left. There is no longer a firm foundation for any world and life view that you might have. Once you have taken away the absolute omnipotence, omniscience, and sovereignty of God, you have nothing left but contingency. That is the religion of Buddhism, of Hinduism. It is very much the religion of Islam, with its emphasis on fate. Contingency. Not an all-sovereign, wise, and good God who directs all things after the counsel of His will, but rather, stuff happens. 
the bedrock of biblical theology is that statement, I am God and there is no other. And so when we ask the question, what was God's intent in sending Christ to die, we can rest assured that that which he intended, he will accomplish fully. Because he is God who accomplishes all his good pleasure. So God intended that Christ should die. Not only do we read that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, but in the gospel according to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. But what was God's will, his purpose, his intent in the death of Christ? Well, there are several options. I think I've exhausted them as I listed four that I'm going to present to you. But you might come up with others. One option is that God may have intended that all men be saved by Christ's death. This leads to the doctrine of universalism. And even within evangelical circles, there are those who believe that ultimately all will be saved. And this is not a Catholic or a Protestant version of purgatory but rather that it is the nature of God not to fail at anything. And these evangelicals define God's success as his saving sinners. They don't see God succeeding in the judgment of the wicked, but rather in the saving of the lost. And so they agree that God accomplishes everything he desires and therefore all men will be saved. But that's beyond the teaching of Scripture. For Scripture does not present to us universalism, universal salvation. It is very clear from Scripture that not all will be saved. And that the lake of fire is reserved for those who would be cast into eternal judgment where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. And we are told in Scripture that beyond our physical death, there is no hope. That salvation is in this day. Today is the day of salvation. And it is appointed to man once to die and then comes judgment. So we have to reject that option that, that God intends the salvation of all men through Christ's death and therefore all men will be saved. No. Well, perhaps God intended that all men be saved, but not all are saved. Well, that's what we just talked about. God does not accomplish His will. He is thwarted by the will of man and by man's ability to reject and resist the spirit of grace and to stay in his condition of rebellion and spiritual death. Now many of you probably think that that is the Arminian view, but it is not. James Arminius was more subtle than that. And actually, the next one I'm going to give you is the Arminian view. Now, we reject the second one because, as we've already seen from Scripture, God accomplishes His will, and nothing thwarts the will of God. But the third view is this, that God may have intended not that any be saved in particular, 
but only that the condition of their salvation be established. In other words, Jesus did not die to save any particular individual human being, but rather Jesus died to establish the condition of their salvation to be faith in him and his death. That is actually the classical Arminian teaching. That Jesus died not for a people, but for a concept. He did not die for you or for me. He died for justification by faith. That concept. He did not die to save, but rather to make salvation possible through faith in him and in his death. Now that is the teaching of Jacob or James Arminius. The fourth option is that of the Reformed tradition, that God intended that only some be saved. And for these elect he sent his son to die, and for them only did Christ die. That is the doctrine under the acronym TULIP of limited atonement. Personally, I prefer definite atonement. For all people's views of atonement are limited, and we'll have occasion to talk about that in the future. But definite atonement in that we believe that Christ shed his blood effectively for his elect, those given to him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. He laid down his life for a definite group of people rather than for a concept, even if that concept is as exalted and as biblical as justification by faith. That is not the reason for which Christ died. So the Reformed view is that Christ came and died to save. Contrasted with the Arminian view that Christ came and died to make salvation possible. That's a big difference. That's a huge difference. Because if we are saved under the Arminian view, and there are many who are saved who are Arminian, don't want to be misunderstood there, then we cannot actually say or sing in our hymns that Christ died for me. But rather we should sing in our hymns that Christ died for faith, and I believed. Christ did his part, and I did mine. He made salvation possible, and I made it mine. And I don't think there's going to be a single soul who says any such thing in the presence of God in the judgment. But what do the scriptures say? I met a fellow who visited our church a few weeks ago who right up front told me he was a four-point Calvinist. And I said, you, you don't like limited atonement? He said, that's right. And he said, I, I really don't want to listen to logical arguments. He didn't like the logic of the Calvinist, probably because it's 
beyond argument, okay? Nobody likes logic when it goes against them, do they? But he wanted to be convinced from Scripture. I said, well, stick around. And I think he's right. We should be convinced from Scripture. What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible teach that Jesus died for a concept or for a people? Well, this is where it becomes such a theologically deep question. We have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to understand and begin to understand the purpose for which God instituted sacrificial death into his own worship and his own relationship with a people. Beginning with Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, we read, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now Abraham is the father of the faithful. And all who have faith are descendants, are the seed of Abraham. So if any place we would learn that a sacrificial death was on behalf of the concept of faith, it might be with Abraham. But rather we see that, that name of God that we use, Jehovah Jireh, in this passage. For it is said in the mount of the Lord, He will provide. He will provide that sacrifice that He Himself demands in the place of Isaac. It was an exchange. Theologically, we call it a substitutionary atonement, where God accepts the death of an animal in the place of the death of the sinner. In other words, this animal dies for a person, not a concept. That concept, faith, is what makes that entire transaction effective in justifying and sanctifying the sinner. Because the faithful understand that it was not the sin of the animal, but rather of myself, that requires the shed blood of this animal. And we have read that already in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Not to establish this principle of faith by which if you will believe, you can attain to the salvation that is made available. No, for your souls. Isaiah 53, again, that gospel passage in Isaiah, verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That's very personal. There's no abstract concept of faith established here. And there is no self-respecting Arminian who would say that Isaiah 53 is not talking about the death of Jesus Christ. Pretty much all evangelicals recognize that Jesus is that suffering servant in Isaiah 53, whom the Lord 
the Father was pleased to crush, but that crushing was for our iniquities. John chapter 10, the famous Good Shepherd passage in the Gospel of John, verses 14 and 15. I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own. Now that's interesting. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What did the Father intend? That the Son would lay down His life for a people. A people called His sheep, the sheep of His pasture. And then that passage in Romans 5, but God demonstrates His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, with no merit within us to warrant this love. And that's the whole point in that passage in Romans 5. Paul says that perhaps for a good man, another might venture to die, but not for a bad man, not for a wicked man, not for a sinner, which we all are, Paul has already established in Romans chapter 3. And yet, while we were yet sinners, God commends his love you see, the Reformed theologian doesn't reject God's love. The death of Christ is the manifestation of God's love. But that death was a personal, sacrificial atonement. It was an exchange. His life for mine. His righteousness for my sin. A glorious and gracious exchange that effectively saves those for whom Christ died. This was atonement, not an abstract concept. It was a sacrificial atonement, not the establishing of, a, of an open door, or at least a door that is no longer locked. This was the will of God, in sending his son into the world and to the cross, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God was that that death would affect the redemption. It's called a ransom. It's called propitiation in his blood. Many words that we'll be looking at in the, in the coming weeks that describe the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all of which tie back into the Levitical sacrificial system of the Old Testament in which we see that that shed blood brought salvation, justification for the soul of the sinner. Not simply the opportunity of salvation, but the reality of salvation. The heart of the Reformed doctrine of definite atonement consists in two facts. Jesus Christ came to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is always and fully accomplished. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, a passage that is on many evangelicals' refrigerators, a passage that is often used to teach a magical property to the reading of Scripture, especially within charismatic circles. 
You're familiar with the passage, but I want to say before I read it that in this passage, the word, word, refers to the will of God. So when we read that God's word will not go forth from him in vain, what we are reading is that God's statement of his purpose, for that is his word, God's statement of his intent, but that word can also not be limited just to the spoken word, but also to the living word, the Logos, the one who is the manifestation of God's will, Jesus Christ. And so we read, So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you and rejoice that we have the sure foundation of knowing that you do indeed accomplish all your good pleasure. That there is none, angel or man, who can thwart your will and that your will is perfect and good. Father, we pray that we might establish ourselves firmly upon that rock, that you are God and there is none like you, and that we would not introduce in our minds any contingency in yours, but rather that you know your purpose from all eternity and that you sent your Son to accomplish your purpose, which he has done and will do unto the day of Jesus Christ, when all things will be clearly seen to be consummated and your will perfectly accomplished. Father, we praise you for you are almighty, you are holy, and you are good. And we ask that you would bless the reading, the preaching, and the understanding of your word to our lives and to our walk. For we ask this for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please stand this evening to receive the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.